1: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
0: I might have had that call when I was a young person, but I wasn't in, I, had, I didn't know anything about this, you know, and so I went my way. I went my way, got married, had children, was living this life, and then this call got stronger and stronger within me. And it was only when I actually met these hermits that I realized, oh, I see what this restlessness inside of me, this spiritual restlessness is about.
1: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts Fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Her short stories and essays have appeared in numerous literary journals and magazines. She taught writing and literature at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and creative nonfiction at the Master of Fine Arts program at Seattle Pacific University. She's a wife, a mother, and a grandmother, and she lives with her husband on four acres on the central coast of California, where they grow fruits and vegetables, press their own olives, and keep chickens. And bees. She is an oblate, that means a lay member of the Kamaldolese Benedictine Monastery community in Big Sur, California. And today we're going to be talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur, which is about the Kamaldolese community there in Big Sur. Paula Houston, welcome to Things Not Seen.
0: Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here today.
1: Well, I said there at the beginning that we're going to be talking about a particular monastic community in Big Sur, California. But on the way to getting there, I think that for the sake of my listeners, we need to maybe establish some vocabulary. So in this conversation, we're going to be using terms like hermit and cenobite and monk, and I want to make sure that my listeners understand what we mean when we use those terms. So I'm going to ask you, if we were to sort of lay this out in a, in a brief way so that we could make sure that our listeners could understand the difference between monks and Cenobites and hermits, where would you suggest that we begin in defining those terms?
0: Well, I think I would start with the word monk. And that's the one that I think people are the most familiar with. It's probably one of the more ancient terms. And the root of that means alone, single. And it refers to people who through the centuries, you know, have been called to this kind of deep contemplative life, spiritual life. And often that meant going to a a monastery. And so monks can be one of two things in fact they can be one of several other things too but a monk can be either a cenobite which is probably the least familiar term to people but really there are more monks who are cenobites by far than there are hermits cenobites are the people that can be male or female who live in monasteries And the traditional form of life was the dormitory style. Nowadays, I think they have more privacy than they used to, but they live together essentially and eat together and worship together. The hermit uh, has traditionally been a person who lives uh, alone in his or her own cell. And hermits can collect in a small community, which the Commodities have done over the centuries. They often follow the same pattern during the day in terms of times in church, going through the liturgy of the hours, you know. So there's a lot of similarities, but essentially the hermit is voluntarily, willingly set apart in his or her own little cell. There's an iteration of hermit, which, which we could go into, but maybe we're not ready yet for that.
1: Well, let me just make sure that I've heard you correctly. So monk is a general term for those within the church who are alone or solitary in various ways. And from that larger term monk, we can begin to subdivide into those that are set apart from the world, but in a social way. In other words, they're living much more in a social setting where they're gathering together and they're interacting in group activities. And those would be Cenobites. And then in distinction from that, there are those that, even though they may live in a community, their entire orientation is towards that solitude and to not interacting socially with others. And those are hermits. Now, have I understood those distinctions correctly?
0: Yes, you did. Yes. I would say Cenobites, too, tend to often have, I'm speaking of the larger world of monasticism, not just the Kamaldolese, but Cenobites often would have some kind of mission. You know, they're doing some kind of, good work in the world and so you'll see various monastic communities who love cenobites, say running uh, a home for older people or working in hospitals or their teaching orders or whatever so
1: yeah and you mentioned that there might be a another distinction to be made here and i wonder if you could bring that into the conversation just quickly as we're setting the table for for what's to come
0: well i said suggested that there were even more rigorous ways to be a hermit and the camaldolese have preserved this tradition in their order all these years that is to become a recluse so you are totally separate hermits like i say and particularly our modern version today here at big Sur, there still is a lot of interaction even though they live in their separate cells and have a lot of time in their separate cells a recluse would actually go permanently into a cell. He might he might come down for Easter or for you know sub- Christmas Eve or something like that, but very much separated. And and so that's a long and interesting tradition too in, in the history of uh, monastic Christianity.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts Fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur, which is about a monastic community in Central California. Well, one of the things that you say in your book, The Hermits of Big Sur, really jumped out at me. It's about midway through the book, maybe first first third of the book, and you're saying that When we're talking about these differing communities, and I think that's one thing that listeners need to understand, is that when we talk about the Catholic Church, it is a huge global church of nearly a billion people. But within that billion-person church, there are multiple sub-communities within that. And so they may have heard of the Franciscans, they may have heard of the Jesuits, and these are sub-communities within the church. And the Camaldolese are a sub-community within the church as well. They're part of a, a particular tradition that goes back Uh, a thousand years or more. But one of the things that really jumped out to me was you said around these questions of, is it proper to be a Cenobite or a hermit? And if you're a hermit, is it proper to live in community or to be the kind of rigorous hermit that, as you said, only comes down and joins a community for something special like Easter? You wrote that at the heart of this question was what it meant to be the right kind of monk and even possibly the right kind of Christian. And I, re- I would love for you to say more about that because help my listeners understand how, you know, in a church of a billion adherents, all of whom most of them are living very social lives in the modern world, how is it that part of the occupying conversation has been, no, but to be really Christian, you need to never talk to another human being as long as you live. Help me understand that.
0: Yes, that's a great question and I can see why definitely why people who have no familiarity with monastic spirituality that would be one of the first things that would come up. It's always been controversial in other words. But I think at the heart of it is a particular kind of call which they recognize not everybody by any means has. This is, you know, a special call from God to spend one's entire time in prayer. So that would be the basis for retreating into the sense of permanent reclusion. It's about what is said in the Bible, you know, pray without ceasing. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. So that means eliminating everything else that could interfere with that ability to do that, if that makes sense. So getting back to the larger question about what does that have to do with being a good Christian? I think you would have to contextualize that by saying it is a special call. And if you've got that call and you try to resist that call, it's gonna, it's gonna be trouble for you. It took me a long time to realize that I might've had that call when I was a young person, but I wasn't in, I, had, I didn't know anything about this, you know? And so I went my way, I went my way, got married, had children, was living this life. And then this call got stronger and stronger within me and it was only when I actually met these hermits that I realized oh I see what this restlessness inside of me this spiritual restlessness is about and there are people who come to the hermitage like I did completely uh, not knowing at all what they did there but instantly feeling I've come home there are other people who come and just veer off and leave because it's, it isn't their call. You know, it's not from them at all. So yes, we would never want to say that the only way to be a, a true Christian is to be a hermit or an anchorite or a recluse, someone who's completely disconnected from the world.
1: Now you've begun to talk about this and I I do want to ask you more about this later in the conversation but at the top of the show I described you as an oblate of this community there in Big Sur and we'll talk more about the structure of the community and and how it functions in the next segment but for right now so this is a community of those that have taken a vow to be hermits they've taken a vow to be in reclusion from the world, and you have attached yourself in some way to this community, but you are not necessarily in reclusion from the world. You are not a hermit. So help my listeners understand what it means to be an oblate in the world of a community that has chosen to withdraw from the world.
0: Yes, and that's another really good question because it's it's the perennial question among those who have become oblates, is how do we What kind of adjustments do we make to our, you know, lives that we've already launched ourselves into, that we are committed to, that we love people in and have obligations to, even our vocations we've chosen over the years? How do those things, in some way or another, need to change in order for us to incorporate as much, number one, silence, solitude, meditation, prayer, times of prayer? into otherwise very busy normal you know american lives and so that especially for people who are just uh, thinking about this thinking about how seriously am i going to take this sort of deep interior call to more silence solitude contemplation prayer what has to give (laughs) and so what's happened and i've seen this over and over in the odd lake community is. Many people wind up leaving careers. They go on working, obviously, but they change. They change the thrust or the focus. I did it myself. I wound up, after you know years of getting my education, getting hired at a university, having a, a teaching career that I really loved in the academic world, when this thing hit me like a ton of bricks, I wound up actually leaving that job walking away voluntarily at 50. And it was the, that was the primary reason. I I realized that I couldn't stay in this kind of very demanding academic milieu, which, you know, required lots of meetings, lots of, it wasn't just students and papers to grade, but there was a swirl going on around me that I needed to step back from. Now, as a 20 plus year oblate at this point, I suspect that I could go back to that world and be fine. I've worked out how to, you know, live this other element of life There's a secret element to my life. I could go, I could probably go back into that mix and be okay. But initially it was too much. It was too much bombardment of competing, uh, what would I call it? Competing goods, you know? <laughs> and so I had to step out for a while.
1: In that answer, what I'm hearing you saying is that this was not a light switch decision. You didn't one day say, oh, I'm going to now go and be a a sort of attached member of this community in Big Sur. But instead, what I'm hearing you saying is that this was a process of gradual discernment. You sort of learned this over, it sounds like years and maybe decades, that this was the right path for you. Could you tell us a little bit about that discernment process?
0: Yeah, you're very right that this was a process that took decades. I, I made my first visit to Newcomaldalee in 1991. So it's now been 30 years since I first saw this group. And I think what has made the discernment process even possible is the many visits I've made back over the years and at initially just observing, you know, I just watched how these people did things. I watched them in their daily services in church. I watched how they interacted with each other. Of course, it's very deliberately quiet, but there's still definitely, you know, plenty of relationships between people, friendships that get formed even in a pretty silent way for years. And so that watching was a really big part of it because I had, you know, I read about things. I tried to figure it out on my own, but I realized I just had to experience it. And then I had to experience when I got home, the loss of it. (laughs) You know, I'd get home and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. My kids were, about the time I got very serious about this, my kids were all teenagers, you know, and it was really tough to try to carve a way through all of that so that I'd have some morning time for prayer before I hit the freeway to get up to my job and start dealing with my students. But I think that the discernment itself it just And they, they say the same thing in the monastic community, that young monks get formed by the life in the community. Obviously, they have books to read, things to study, papers to write. When they're going through their first few years as novices, they, there's a lot for them to learn academically, theologically. But what they're really learning, the big stuff they're learning, is how to be a monk. And they're learning that from each other. They're learning it from watching the older, more experienced monks. And that's exactly how the Oblates have to do it. And we Oblates figured out about 25 years ago that we needed each other, that we were kind of our own outside-the-walls community if we took the time to start gathering every few months and you know, spend a day together, invite a monk down to talk to us. So that community has become very important to us as As oblates, because everybody's living it somewhat differently, but at the center is this ongoing quest to keep room in our lives for this relationship with God.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts Fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Uh, we're talking today about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur, which is about the Kamalalees hermetic community in Central California. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts fellow. She's the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Her short stories and essays have have appeared in numerous literary journals and magazines. She's taught writing at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and she's taught creative nonfiction for the Master of Fine Arts program at Seattle Pacific University. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur, which is about a monastic community, New Camaldoli, in Central California. Well throughout this conversation so far we've been talking about this community New Camaldoli. That implies the existence of an old Camaldoli. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to just give a brief overview for my listeners about what that older Camaldoli community was all about.
0: Sure. Back in the 11th century there was a young monk at a gigantic Benedictine monastery in Ravenna, Italy. The church is still there. It's you ever get a chance to see it as some of the more amazing mosaics I've ever seen there, and uh, this young monk, Romuald, began to feel this kind of calling talking about this was the days when monastic life was had become very elaborate. The Benedictine monasteries you know had gotten to be layered and upon layered with ritual and times in church and all that and he began feeling this this call toward a Quieter, more silent, more contemplative life, and he was not the only one. This was happening to this same kind of—I don't know if I call it a reform. It was a movement in that century, took place various places in in uh, Europe, and one, of course, became the Cistercians. One became the Carthusians. It was like a return to the the desert father spirituality that had sort of gotten buried under the accretions of the centuries in that more formal monasteries so Romuald a Ravenna asked permission to leave and go become a hermit and he had an unhappy experience he went and studied with a hermit his hermits were out there and the guy was uh, pretty rough on him (laughs) and anyway he wound up taking up this life of a kind of itinerant hermit so in other words a, a guy who traveled he did a lot of walking and as he went he would just naturally attract little groups of followers he would help them get going in this more more quiet contemplative type of air medical life and then leave them behind and go on to someone else so he Romuald of Ravenna even though he's not what you would call a founder in the way that a lot of orders have they can point to somebody and say this is our founder. but he was sort of the uh, gave birth to this Romaldian spirituality that eventually became known as Commodities and that's because at one point near the end of his life, he was able to found a hermitage up in the Apennine Mountains overlooking the Tuscan Valley of Italy, very beautiful place. That's It's known as the Sacro-Eremo, which means holy hermitage, that is still standing, still occupied by Camaldolese monks a thousand years later. Still following, you know, the what we call the brief rule of St. Romuald of Ravenna, which begins, sit in your cell as in a paradise, put the whole world behind you and forget it. Watch like a fisherman watching for fish. I mean, it's, it's a deeply contemplative little rule that also came along with the rule of St. Benedict. He was still a Benedictine. That rule was 500 years old by the time ramiel came along. Now it's 1500 years old, but that, so he, he was ultimately known as the father of reasonable hermits who lived by a rule <laughs> because there were too many people that went out there on their own and tried to wing it and went crazy. You know, they, it was not good for them psychologically. So that was sort of the, the foundation of this whole thing. Aaron. To me, it's just miraculous that after a thousand years, there is still this community that's ongoing at Old Comalde. There were they became, you know, much larger during Renaissance times. They, I think they had up to maybe five hundred houses around Italy and in Europe. Much smaller in, in our time. I think the last I heard the total Comalde's congregation in the world is about eighty five guys. So, you know, not big, but now in India. Tanzania Brazil still Italy here in America so it's it's a bit of a very stubborn little group (laughs) they they found something good and they hung on to it and they had to go through a lot of historical nightmares you know to survive this
1: long We've talked so far about the fact that the Catholic Church is a huge church of nearly a billion people, but it's got these small communities dotted throughout. And you mentioned that the Kamaldolese community maybe has 85 adherents throughout the world right now. One of the things that makes each of these communities distinct from the other is a term that maybe my listeners haven't heard. It's this term charism. And you talk in your book The Hermits of Big Sur about the the peculiar charism of the Kamaldelees communities. And it, it's got a threefold structure to it. I wonder if you could briefly tell us what this particular charism of the Kamaldelees communities is.
0: Now, yeah, that's really important for people to understand that the reason for the existence of these communities as official, you know, initially the Camaldolese were their own order. Now they're considered to be part of the great Benedictine confederation. So they're a congregation instead of their own order. But in order for you to be approved by the Pope, you know, as, as you begin a new order, you have to show that you've got something to offer the world, which isn't already being offered. You know, why would you start something that looks just like the Franciscans if the Franciscans are already there? And sure, there's tons of overlap because we're talking about the Christian path and there's lots of different ways to live that. But in the so that's what the charism refers to it means that kind of special gift of that group meant for the good of them and the world. And in this case, they have what they call the threefold good. So it's a three-part charism. And the first of these aspects is what we in contemporary times would call community life. They have always referred to it as the privilege of love, which I think is just so beautiful. In other words, it begins with the notion that my signing up to live with you guys for the rest of my life, you nine brothers or whatever, is a privilege. <laughs> it's going to be my privilege to to learn to love you and to be loved by you. And so it's very surprisingly for a group of hermits, very community oriented. Benedict himself, St. Benedict, didn't believe people had the spiritual strength to go out and be a hermit on their own until they had spent time in community you know lived as a cenobite, and that was his hard-earned wisdom because he'd seen too many people not make it so the comeovilies really focus on that community and i think i mentioned earlier that they really believe that young monks are formed primarily by life in that community formed meaning change you know coming in with some gifts some hang-ups some fears and neuroses all kinds of stuff we come in as bundles of who knows what and somehow life in that community is going to shape us and form us and allow us to slowly begin this process of transformation putting on the mind of christ is what we would call that in you know in biblical terms The second of the goods in their threefold good is silence or solitude. And they always refer to it as golden solitude. And that's the very aromidical or hermit aspect. It means that when, when you think about the daily schedule up at the Hermitage in Big Sur, there are big chunks of time set aside for solitude for these guys. They have jobs, you know, they Some of them are the maintenance guys, some of them cook, some of them, there's a guest house up there that they run, they have a bookstore, they do lots and lots of spiritual direction, counseling, concessions with guests who come, but they can count on in their day these set-aside times of solitude. And they even have one desert day a month where they're completely, they can turn into recluse for a day. <laughs> they they don't they don't attend any of the services, you know, they're just on their own in their in their cells. And that's a time of rejuvenation. And then the third of the three goods is what it's sort of mundane term for it, outreach. But what they really prefer is missionary martyrdom for that. Outreach sounds like you send little postcards out to people or whatever, <laughs> and invite them to tease or whatever but it's bigger than that it's a sacrifice of the self for some good that overflows to the world and i think the the theory which has been sort of proven over and over again just by the individual lives of the people that have lived yeah. out of this threefold good is that if you do come up with the right balance of solitude commitment to community and what community can teach you there's a natural moment where that begins to work in you like leaven and your own special calling or gift from God starts to really manifest and I think one of the beauties of this particular charism is that they really do believe like a good family part of the job of good parents and siblings is to nurture the gifts of one another like don't stand in the way of your you know, child trying to live out his or her gift from God. Instead, sometimes people don't even know they have a gift. You know, it's the encouragement and the teasing out of that, and then making it possible for people to, even living in this kind of big-star wilderness, in the hermitage, and they are quite gifted people, and it's because of that. And those gifts invariably are blessings to the world. So that would be that third good, if that together.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Paula Houston, a National Endowment for the Arts fellow and the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur, which is about the history of the new Camaldoli community in Central California. Well, in your book, The Hermits of Big Sur, there are a lot of names about people, mostly males at the beginning, some females later, who helped to found and shape this community over the past 70 years. But perhaps for our purposes in the conversation, two names that ring out that my listeners probably would have heard about in the founding of this new Camaldoli community on the basis of that old Camaldoli community are Benito Mussolini and Thomas Merton. And so maybe if you could briefly talk about how both Benito Mussolini and Thomas Merton factor into the founding of the new Camaldoli community in Central California.
0: Yeah, this was something that surprised me at how deeply I needed to go into Italian 20th century history, especially political history, in order to be able to write about this little group of hermits in Big Sur. I mean, it just, <laughs> it wasn't what I set out to do. But as I began my research, I realized, well, all of that political history was really affecting, you know, the community in Italy big time. And so Benito Mussolini, of course, was a, had begun as a sort of radical socialist up in northern Italy in the very first part of the 20th century. And got big aspirations, political aspirations. began developing his theory of fascism, in which the state becomes deified. He, you know, he was an atheist, but that the state would be deified, and that he was the man to pull Italy out of what had been a pretty major sense of defeat in World War One. There was particularly a battle with the Germans that they had never quite gotten past, as they lost in such a big way. And so Mussolini was busily starting his political career back then. And by, I think it was 1921, he got on to officially into the government in Italy. And within a couple of years, he had already laid the groundwork by creating a sort of mystique around himself that uh, he was a very charismatic guy that attracted a lot of very unhappy folks, uh, especially ex World War I soldiers. So he had groups of, thugs roaming around in Italy to convince people who were not yet convinced that he was going to be the the ruler of Italy to get in line and so there was a lot of the church at that time would have been automatically an enemy because he you know he hated the church he saw it as a competitor but then he did a very uh thing once he was able to get in power he realized he had to have the church on his side. There was no way he could buck the Pope and get away with it. Italy was this very Catholic country. And so, you know, there were negotiations. And the Pope also realized that Mussolini could do some good stuff for the church, which had been pretty hammered during the 19th century, lost a lot of power, money, lands. So it was a um, what marriage of convenience that took place between the two of them. And that's the milieu, then out of which the Camaldolese in particularly, you know, the man who came over and established this new hermitage in America came out of that. It was very powerful and frightening what was happening
1: in Italy. So the new Camaldolese community was founded after World War II by a monk who had been shaped by this political moment. Was the hope to redeem uh, the kind of besmirch of of the association of catholicism with with fascist power or was it to escape from that kind of politics like what was driving some of the thoughts as this monk and then other monks began to think about this community in central california
0: yeah that's got a complicated history to it also but i would pick option 2 when you said to get away get out of that mix and i really saw that in in this person who came to America, Ugo Modotti, that he had seen the worst of what humans could do to each other. And the early group of men who showed up in 1958, 1959, in the America, this new American hermitage, many of them had also been shaped by their war experiences in World War II.
1: In this spirit of kind of fleeing from what they had seen from the war, the kind of worst of humanity, that really is a good way to introduce uh, a a concept that comes up a lot in your book, The Hermits of Big Sur, this idea of fuga mundi. I wonder if you could tell my listeners what fuga mundi is and how it plays into this idea of withdrawing from particularly the horrors of war and humanity's inhumanity to itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Togamundi means flight from the world. It was certainly part and parcel of the movement toward the desert back in, you know, the third, fourth century as the Roman Empire was starting its slow rolling collapse and things were getting more and more decadent and barbaric and whatever in Rome. Many of those early monks and hermits out in the great deserts of Palestine and Egypt and stuff, they just we have to get away from that to be able to even focus on what's, what's important here, to be able to live freely in this life with God. So Fugamundi um, essentially means that. And I would say that most people who feel some version of that when they go to a place like a monastery, I need to get away, you know, that's the initial impulse. But as I found out in my own life, that's not enough to keep you going. It can't just be trying to escape the bad stuff or, you know, block it out in some way. You're drawing back for the purpose of then beginning to grow in a way that will allow you to, to deal with the world again. You know, so it's a circle. You come back out in some way or another. And boy, that's been uh, fascinating to watch since I've been an observer and a friend of the Hermitage for 30 years. I've seen a number of guys grow up (laughs) i've seen guys who are my age when they went in become old or the older guys who were how they did become people who could speak very free they became very free beings they could speak freely to anything and it's not like they're disconnected from what's going on in fact when you want to know what the news is up there even though they have no internet at least for gas no internet or cell coverage you'll hear it during morning prayers because they have You know, they have newspapers in their library. They have, they themselves have a satellite connection. So they know what's happening. It's not like they're pretending it doesn't exist, but they're dealing with what's happening through this kind of contemplative gaze that they have developed over years and years of living this kind of life. Yeah, it's a real interesting tension.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahls. We're speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur, which is about the Kamal de community of monks in Central California. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to a decade of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction titles. Her short stories and essays have appeared in numerous literary journals and magazines, and she's taught writing and literature at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and creative nonfiction at the Master of Fine Arts program at Seattle Pacific University. She's an oblate or a lay member of the Kamal benedictine monastic community in Big Sur, California. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur which is about that community. Well, before the break, we had also mentioned a name that was central to helping found and sort of create the vision for this community of hermits in Big Sur, California, and that name is Thomas Merton. And I wonder if you'd take a few moments and briefly tell us how Thomas Merton's path intersected with this Kamaldolese community.
0: Yeah, for for people who don't know a lot about Thomas Merton, I, he's probably the most famous monk, American monk, who's existed, <laughs> and uh, very influential. And he was another of those people that was profoundly affected by his own brother, went off to war and was killed in World War II in the 40s. And Merton himself, I think, was born in 1915. So he's Among that group of people would have, in the same era as Mussolini was operating, they're all intertwined. And Merton joined a Trappist monastery, famous Gethsemane monastery, as a young man. Most people would say the Trappists were plenty, strict enough and silent enough to meet any deep call to contemplation. But Merton was a very, very gifted, really brilliant writer and had been writing before he became a monk. And so he wrote what became his probably his most famous book, The Seven-Story Mountain, when he was still relatively young. And it, it brought him worldwide fame. And that meant that he had re- the very thing he had retreated to a monastery to find, which was this kind of silent solitude, he felt constantly bombarded by the fact that he was now a famous writer, you know, so I think that was part of what was happening in him when he wrote the first letter in 1952 to the prior general of the Carmelites. Prior general just means that they call the head of monasteries, they're not abbots in the Carmelites; or they're their priors. And the prior general would be the the sort of head prior over all the hermitage and monasteries in the Carmelites congregation. Anyway. He wrote to the prior general who was at the Sacral Aramal and said, look, I I think what you guys are doing there is what I really need to be doing. Could I come there and become a hermit? And he was, the prior general was quite welcoming, said, just show up. You can become, you've been living as a very, you know, strictly enclosed monk for a number of years. You should be fine. Well, that didn't fly very well with Thomas Merton's own abbot back home, said no. And Merton is just an interesting fellow. And so many people have written about him. So there are just tons and tons of books about him and his complex character. But the assumption was that he had gotten wound up about something that he really wasn't meant to do. And so that's a whole nother area if people are interested in reading about him. The long and the short of it was there were a number of letters exchanged between the prior general in Italy at the Sacro Aramal. And Merton, who was getting increasingly desperate sounding, (laughs) I need more silence, I need more solitude, I need to be a hermit, went on for about three years, this exchange of letters. And in that correspondence, when Merton realized he wasn't going to be allowed to go to Italy, then he said, well, maybe you guys should come here. You know, how about America doesn't have anything like this. We in this brash young hustle bustle country of ours we need a pure hermitage of you know of uh, these silent solitary monks and he even said i think you should do it on the coast of california which is very interesting to me how merton would have ever envisioned that because they had the whole united states to choose from and they did look at a number of possible sites but he was he just seemed to have this vision of where they should plant this foundation if they were able to pull it off he finally merton himself finally realized this was not going to happen that possibly god had other plans for merton and you know as those of us who are merton fans can see yes he did there were tremendous amount of important writing he did connections with the dalai lama people all you know people all over the world he became a worldwide figure which he couldn't have done if he were a recluse at old Kamaldoli. But but the monks at Nunnawale believe always had a very fond place in their hearts for Merton because, and it's not even clear if he actually ever got to visit there. People say they think he did, but it's there's. I was really surprised not to find a a, a record of that. So that's Merton's connection with the order.
1: One of the things that comes out in your book, The Hermits of Big Sur, is that this particular area that Merton envisioned, there in the kind of redwoods, it's south of San Francisco, it was a good place to found a monastic community, but others also Found their way to Big Sur, and right after the community of New Camaldoli is founded in the late 1950s, there is the psychedelic revolution in San Francisco, and many of those that are part of the tune in, turn on, drop out crowd are driving down the highway past the monastery. I'd love to hear a little bit about how the monks interacted with the hippies, in particular.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a really interesting little. Uh- Chapter I found in you know in the archives and the notes in the archives that so the the monks in Big Sur they own approximately nine hundred acres so they have a pretty big chunk of wilderness they're on the side of a mountain it goes all the way to the top where there's a beautiful lake and in the sixties like late sixties early seventies more and more people struck by their own versions of fugamundi you know I want to get away from life whatever it is started coming to the big sur coast and there was one gr- group uh, in particular who had a mine claim There's some mining that went on in the hills above that area and they asked permission to drive through this enclosed place of hermits to get more easily to their mine claim. so that the monks had to really talk about this like wait a minute isn't this going to be disruptive is this going to be and one one of the monks, uh, Father Bernard, a little French Canadian guy who became one of my dearest friends up there, he was in charge at that time with making decisions about who gets to come, who gets to go. And so he said, "Look, I think that we should assume that things will go well. You know, some of these people have their own religious practices. Some of them may even be Christian. Let's be." Hospitable in the Benedictine way and let them do this and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, we'll have to stop it. So that's what they did. So they had this, I don't know how long but the arrangement lasted before it got blown because then one day on a hike, they had a, the monks would have a one day a month recreation day, which in their casement, they always took a hike up the mountain. They spotted a, a camp in the woods, you know, with a fire ring and They realized, okay, these are these same people who say they're not going to bother us and they're not going to camp on our land. And here they are. And they could burn down the whole place, you know, so, so they they had to kick them off. But, you know, I think in their, their spirit of openness, even in those old strict days was always there. They, they always had a, a kind of uh, curiosity about others and what they might bring to the place too. And uh, so protecting that, that, Necessary kind of isolation while we'll still get offering Benedictine hospitality has been one of their challenges over the years.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts Fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction books. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Hermits of Big Sur. Well, we mentioned that this community of New Kamaldoli was founded in the late 1950s, and then it almost immediately began to encounter the psychedelic revolution of the hippies in the 1960s. But there's another revolution that happens in the late 1960s within the Catholic Church, and that's the Second Vatican Council. And as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I wonder if you'd take a few moments and talk to us about how the community of New Kamaldoli reacted to and eventually adjusted to some of the really radical changes that occurred in Vatican II.
0: Yeah, that was some of the most interesting research I did because I, this I was pulling pretty much straight out of the archives at the Hermitage. It was in the form of letters that people had written to Rome to object to some of the changes that were happening, and it was it's really a microcosm of how the probably the whole Catholic world reacted, you know, in various ways to the big changes that came about after Vatican II, and so on. One hand, there was a kind of freeing of the spirit. The people got very excited about what we could do now, who we could read, who used to be on the list of forbidden books or theologians who had been suppressed because they were too modernist in their view. Suddenly they were okay to read. And so one of the the monks at New Kimoli just dived right in. They definitely wanted to know everything that They hadn't been able to explore before and and also to apply it to their own community. And it was little things like they were told, first of all, no more devotionals, no more rosaries said in the church. You can do that in your own self, but this is no, these private devotionals are no longer part of our community practice. Oh, that just outraged certain people. Other people were like, okay, we, we have bigger, more important things to focus on. On the other hand, there was also great resistance on the part of some of the, especially some of the older monks that had been there. One in particular had been born in 1906. So he was quite old when all of this was going on and just really upset him. So watching how they tried to navigate that as I read their, you know, their journals they kept, the letters they wrote to each other, it really brought home to me what the wider Catholic world went through. And in many ways, it, it was not a very graceful announcement of, OK, now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. with no-. There wasn't enough, probably, preparation of people who had been completely steeped in the old pre-Vatican II forms of Catholic practice and spirituality. And it, it really rocked the boat. And we're still seeing that boat is still rocking. I think one of the reasons that right now the Catholic Church seems very split in America in particular is that we still haven't come to terms with the Vatican II and and its implications for us as church.
1: One of the things that struck me in your book, *The Hermits of Big Sur*, was prior to Vatican II, and then very much in the wake of Vatican II, was an idea called *ressourcement*, which you know it's a technical term, but it basically means going back to the early sources of the Church. And one of the things that really came to the to the forefront in this ressourcement, was the writings of the ancient desert fathers. And I'm wondering, when this was part of the Vatican II revolution, this re-centralization of some of these early writings from hermits, how did the community at New Camaldoli respond to the rediscovery, redeployment, I'm not even sure what the right word is, of these kind of ancient hermetic writings?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was very interesting, too, because you'd think that would be a natural fit, right? (laughs) Hermit speaking to hermit. But one of the things that had happened in the early 20th century, when, you know, after the political turmoil from the 19th century had settled and the, the monks were able to return to monasteries that had actually been suppressed, things like that, they tried to... Reestablish their monastic discipline that had been interrupted for some years for relationships with one another. And they the sources they were using were pretty much all like 18th century. And they were very much about I don't know, I don't want to use the word legalistic, but they were about very strict practice. Like if if you were going to be a good Kamaldolese hermit, you needed to do this and this. They were not focused on the interior spiritual journey which is the whole point really of becoming a monk is to have the time and the space and the freedom and the privilege to make this pretty big interior journey so the resource mod documents for some of the really brilliant scholars among the were opening that door back up that, you know, yes, those old desert fathers, they were a strict bunch too, <laughs> highly ascetical, many of them, but they were also, some of them were very deep and very profoundly spiritual. And that's what they were trying to revive. And that was the point of being a monk and it had been lost.
1: Well, it's now 2021. And I wonder, as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, you know, we've described a community that is very backwards looking in some ways. It. It loves the past, and it loves the idea of the old desert hermits. And so one wonders in the wake of Vatican II, and particularly now that we're in the 21st century, what does the new Camaldoli community look like today?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you would be, I think anybody who's never been there, it's easy, a very austere, unsmiling group. And I've come to know all of them in, in different ways over the years. Everybody is very much an individual, you know, very different people sometimes very different personalities, and what glues them together and they've in these more recent years, that's become a bigger deal to them too, is to the respect for one another's individuality. It's part of that third good, you know, and so when you meet them and see them in their robes in church, all together doing the liturgy or whatever, it's easy to just see. A kind of anonymous, you know, collection of of folks. Then you will read something they've written, listen to them speak, talk to them in the bookstore, go for spiritual direction, and you'll realize, you know, man, these people are very, very much of our world. Consciously, they really are. They're 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 connected. They they think about it. It's not that they only pray for the world, but they're also in some way or another, they're involved. So you don't get the feeling that you're in this medieval place, that's what I'm trying to say. What they do have that I think the rest of us don't is this time, this space, this stable community, spectacular natural setting to develop the self and and their relationship with God in a way that a lot of us long for or dream about but don't get.
1: Well, Paula Houston Your book, The Hermits of Big Sur was just a treasure trove for me. I got into it thinking that I was going to read sort of a dry history. And instead, you made parts of the 20th century and even the, the 19th century come alive for me around the history of Catholicism in ways that I had not anticipated. It is a fantastic book. I hope that my listeners will pick it up and learn about this community that, though small, has real connections to the wider politics of the world and sounds like an amazing place to visit and certainly a wonderful place to pray for and to support. Thank you so much for The time that it took to write the book. But thank you especially for taking the time to talk to us about it today.
0: Well, I really appreciate the invitation to be in this discussion with you. I really enjoyed it. And Your questions are wonderful.
1: Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Paula Houston. She's a National Endowment of the Arts fellow and is the author of two novels and eight nonfiction titles. Her short stories and essays have appeared in numerous literary journals and magazines, and she's taught writing and literature at schools like Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and Creative Nonfiction for the Master of Fine Arts program at Seattle Pacific University. She is an oblate, that means a lay member of the Kamalda Benedictine monastic community in Big Sur, California, and today we've been talking about her recent book about the history of that community, The Hermits of Big Sur. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science. Part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijek. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests.